Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. The word passion can be defined as an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. For some people, that may be gardening. For others, it might be music, art, or a host of other interests or hobbies. Our guests, Rick Curdy and Chris LaRosa, have each reached out to Your History, Your Story to share how they are each actively pursuing their passions while inspiring others to do the same. Rick Curdy, who is originally from Southern California, has always had a passion for baseball. Though he admittedly wasn't very good at playing the game, that never dampened his love of the sport. Now residing in Charlotte, North Carolina, Rick is using his enthusiasm, artistic ability, and networking skills to advocate bringing a Major League Baseball team to his newly adopted city. Chris LaRosa, who lives in southern New Jersey, began to seriously explore his family roots several years ago following the passing of his mother. Genealogy has since become a labor of love that has led to hours of mystery-solving, connecting with relatives, and unlocking treasure troves of stories about generations of his family. Chris hopes to expand his passion for genealogy by helping others discover their family roots. In this episode, Following Your Passions, Rick and Chris will each tell their stories, which we know will inspire you to follow your passions, too. I'd now like to welcome Rick Curdy to our show. Welcome, Rick. Hey, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you because uh, you are a real baseball fan and a real wonderful guy who's trying to do some good things for his community and his adopted city of Charlotte, North Carolina. So we're really glad to have you here to tell us about your passion for baseball and your passion for bringing people together for positive things. I want to start off, Rick, by asking you, where were you born and raised? I was born in Los Angeles, California on May 24th, 1976. That's where I grew up. Grew up a big Dodger fan, you know, going to Dodger games, going to Angel games. I was spoiled out there. We had two of everything. So I think my love was when I went to a Dodger game and just soaked up the atmosphere of it. And uh, I've been hooked ever since. Ah, So did you, in Los Angeles, is that where you went to school? Yes, I went to um, uh, elementary school. It was at 153rd Street School in Gardena, California. It's a suburb outside of Los Angeles. I went to middle school at Perry Junior High School, named after Robert E. Perry, who discovered the North Pole. And when I went to high school, I went to Torrance High School, which is a city next to Gardena, class of 1994. And a fun fact about my high school is that they used to film the show Beverly Hills 90210 there, the original show. And they filmed it during school time. So when I'd be at school and I'm trying to take my math test and I turn around and I see Jason Priestley or Luke Perry or Jenny Garth. And I had a crush on Jenny Garth. So it was kind of difficult to (laughs) to kind of uh, concentrate in school while they're filming this super ridiculously popular show at that time. So I always tell people, uh, sorry to disappoint you, but they really didn't film it in Beverly Hills. They filmed it in Torrance, California. (laughs) Were you an extra? At that time, I was so shy and so awkward and nerdy and i'm like man they don't want me there so i I would just go home and we'll go watch a game but as i look back i said yeah i should have done it it would have been a lot of fun 
<laughs> you would have had a claim to fame and who knows, maybe you would have gotten some royalties. I might've, I mean, uh, I might've had someone discover me. See, that's it. That's the guy. This is a new teen heartthrob, you know, c- come here. I mean, it could have happened. I mean, look, I could have been like Lana Turner, you know, who got discovered at a, at a restaurant counter, you know, some guy discovered her there having lunch there and she became famous allegedly. So I could have been the next Lana Turner. Who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you're a native Californian. Yes. And now you're living in North Carolina. Why yep. did you make that move, Rick? Uh, I kind of just needed a change and I kind of wanted to live somewhere more family friendly, you know, just some somewhere different. Never lived in the South. Looked at other places, Atlanta, Nashville. Charlotte was like, uh, didn't know much about it. Um, and then I just kind of did research on it, say, let's, let's come out here and move. And I've been here ever since. So this is home to me. So Rick, tell me, when did you first fall in love with the sport of baseball? Probably early on in my age. I don't know exactly how old I was, probably four or five. Uh, just watching the game was so much fun. Growing up in Los Angeles, we had two of everything, two baseballs, two football teams, two basketball teams. You know, going to a Dodger game, and I remember my dad taking me there and sitting down and having a Dodger dog, which are the best, and just watching the game and being outside and just seeing the being the atmosphere around people, watching the game, and just seeing a lot of happy faces. That's what I always notice when I go to games. I see a lot of happy, smiley faces. So I think that's the joy that I got out of that. So those are the memories that uh, sort of gave you the passion that you have today for the sport. Yeah, and it was just a lot of fun to have a home team to cheer for. And, uh, you know, when they win, it's great. And, you know, win or lose, you know, I'm, I was always happy to go to a game, but uh, it was always better when they won. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So, Rick, did your dad really enjoy the game of baseball? Was that his favorite sport? No, unfortunately, my dad liked baseball and we'd go to baseball games, but his passion was soccer or as they call it, football. Uh, you know, my dad grew up in Mexico and he'd always say in America, they call it soccer. Well, it's football. But my dad was actually a professional soccer player in Mexico. He always thought I, I would make a great goalie, even though I was short. He thought I'd make a good goalie and, you know, no offense to soccer or football, but it was never my passion or it was never the love for me. It was always baseball. Now, I live in New Jersey I am a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. I wonder, you know, why? I think people would wonder why. But uh, basically what happened was my dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And my dad went way back. My dad followed them back in the, probably in the 40s and 50s. And when I knew that was his favorite team, I wanted to like his favorite team. So I picked the Dodgers. Of course, they had moved to Los Angeles the year I was born in 58. So they were always Los Angeles Dodgers. And I did actually go see the Dodgers play the Yankees in the World Series. Wow. I think it was 1981, and I think it was the opening game. You know, I wish I had saved the program from that game. But you were talking about as a kid playing baseball, like Sandlot baseball you're talking about? Yeah, Sandlot baseball or like just going to a park. So that movie, uh, The Sandlot, always gives me good memories because it reminds me of my childhood now. I wasn't chased by dogs or nothing like that, but I mean, it, it reminds me when we used to go to the ballpark and say, Hey, let's play a game of baseball. And it was, it was fun because it, it was before Facebook. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have all that stuff. You know, we, we actually went out and played a game and 
it was a lot of fun. So those are, are really good childhood, good memories that I have. That's great. You know, I think about baseball and I think of kids with baseball and stuff like that. And when I was a kid, you know, you drove around on a Saturday and, uh, or even after school and you'd, you'd probably see the local baseball diamonds, whether it be a park or a you know, school field or whatever would be full of kids playing baseball of some sort. You don't see that as much. No, uh, unfortunately. As and now there's a lot of leagues and there's a lot of uh, league activity, which is wonderful. It's great structure and all that. But I think there's some, something of the old days, the pickup games where just the kids in the neighborhood get together and just start playing. There's something about that that was, I don't know, it just was a lasting feeling of uh, the good old days and, and having fun and camaraderie and, and stuff like that. There wasn't as much structure, but it was a lot of fun. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think today now there's so many choices. I think we have too many choices. And, you know, I feel kind of bad for like young kids today who don't have that experience of going to a baseball diamond. You know, now everybody's downloading everything and getting this app and live streaming and everything. And to me, just going to a baseball diamond was fun. I was just in the Gastonia, which is like 30 minutes away. They have a brand new baseball team. They built this brand new stadium there. I was there Friday and it was a blast. You know, I mean, just to be around people, see a game, you know, be out in the open and feel the nice chill, seeing the game. It was a great game. They won. That's so much fun to do. And I, I, to me, that's my that's my safe haven is going to a baseball game and just seeing people. And I think one great thing with social media is that you connect with people on there and then sometimes you see them in person and they go, hey, I know who you are. So that's always that, I think that's the great thing about uh, social media as well as you get to meet. Now you connect more with people and then you kind of meet them afterwards. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's, it's kind of nice, you know, in a, in a way, but yeah, I agree with you, you know, going to a baseball diamond, going to a park, it's kind of like a dying art now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you talk about social media. I mean, there's so many good points to social media, like connecting with people, but it's, it's really great when you can actually see them in person and people are out there doing things physically. And of course, with the pandemic, it's been tough. I'm sure the kids uh, over the last couple of years have been, you know, maybe prevented in some cases from playing at all. So uh, we're hoping in the upcoming months that that'll change and things will continue to move toward uh, more outdoor activity and more people getting together in groups and stadiums and things like that, where you can uh, enjoy a game together with a big crowd. Cause there's nothing like hearing a, a big crowd cheering for the team, the home team, or, you know, in effect being at the games where, uh, local games where parents are are cheering and friends are cheering for the kids. So we're yeah. looking forward to that. I think in, in many, many cases, it is getting back to normal. And we just hope that that continues. So talking about baseball now as a kid. So you said you weren't a great athlete, but you loved baseball. Isn't it nice to know, though, that you don't have to be a great athlete. You don't have to be a great bowler to enjoy a game of bowling. No. be a great baseball player to, to play baseball. How did, how did you do like when, when you were playing as a kid and stuff, maybe you, you weren't, you didn't have the arm or you didn't have the bat or whatever. Somebody else, how did that work out with you? Oh, it was tough because my brother was such a great baseball player. So they're like, Hey, he's got a younger brother and he loves baseball. So they just assumed I was a great player until they saw me play. And they were just like, 
oh lord and i'm left-handed so they always stuck me in right field i wanted to play shortstop i wanted to be the next kel ripkin the next honus wagner and they're like well you're left-handed and there's there's no way you have to be right-handed and so i was always stuck in the outfield but i was so bad but they liked me so much I would be the guy that would go around the corner store to go get the refreshments or like, Hey, go, go get those foul balls that are out uh, across street. So, so they would always get, try to get me involved as much as I could and, and things like that. But um, I think because I knew the game and everything and, and uh, I, I give them my little expertise about it, you know, I think that's what, why I, I hung around, but unfortunately I wish I could tell people I was a great athlete and was a star in my height. I didn't even make my own high school baseball team. But you know what? I look at other people who I admire, like Pete Rosell, who was never, I mean, I don't think he ever played a game of football, but yet he's the pioneer of the NFL. He's made it a billion-dollar business with all the commercials, the advertising. If it wasn't for Pete Rosell, the NFL would not be this billion-dollar juggernaut that it's become. And he never played a game. So those are people who I admire that he never played football, but he's like a legend in the NFL. Well, that's great. Well, I've got news for you. I did not make my high school's athletic hall of fame myself. <laughs> <laughs> not even close. Yeah. I remember playing little league and when we collected our uniforms, my uniform was probably dated back to the 1950s and it was way too big for me, but <laughs> yeah, I never had to wash my uniform because I was always on the bench. So I had the cleanest uniform. I think in the whole team and the whole league and people were like, wow, your uniform is always nice and clean. I'm like, well, I don't do anything. I just sit on the bench and, and get foul balls and uh, go and get refreshments after the game. So that's pretty much what my job was to do. And, but um, I always thought I looked nice in my uniform and, you know, people just assume that you're probably really good. I'm like, no, I'm not. I was always too small, too thin, too skinny. Not the case anymore. <laughs> And um, it's just, you know, it is what it is today. Yeah. But Rick, what's important is you, you were around the game and you're still around the game. So, so what do you do for a living now, Rick? Uh, well, I work uh, at, at a food plant right now. So, and I actually work nights. So I have the whole days to myself. So when I'm not doing podcasts and not promoting the Charlotte bats or trying to create a, a, some type of team, I'm usually at work at night. So I have to find that kind of balance of sleeping and, you know, <laughs> trying to have a normal life, but it works for me. It doesn't work for some people, but I've been fortunate that it works for me. Yeah. I've spoken to a lot of people who work evenings and say, Hey, it's good. The traffic is better, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a good segue. When you talk about promoting baseball, tell our listeners how you have turned your childhood passion for baseball into your adult passion for baseball and what is it you're doing to sort of spread the love of the game to others? Well, you know, I always believe that baseball should be played everywhere, you know, and unfortunately it's not, we have States that don't even have baseball and Charlotte is a growing city. And when I came to Charlotte, I just said, why doesn't Charlotte have major league baseball? I cannot understand North Carolina has never had the opportunity to ever have a major league baseball team, but yet Washington DC, this is their third shot at getting major league baseball. And that's like, that's not right. And so as I lived here longer and did research and I just looked at the population and growth, I said, we can support a major league baseball team. And now with the commissioner putting us on this list in 2015 for expansion, it's been great. 
people who have lived here all their lives have said, I always felt Charlotte should have a major league baseball team. We have basketball, we got football, we got a pro hockey team in our capital. Why not major league baseball? And I think what makes us even more special is that we have a sister state next door in South Carolina that doesn't have any pro sports. And so we would be two states in one. So when people say Charlotte is such a small market and we can't support sports, I said, well, we're actually two markets because we're right next to each other. The other cities don't really have that sister city next door. I mean, I could go to South Carolina right now and it'll take me 25 minutes. So I think that's the uh, added bonus for having a pro baseball team in the Carolinas is that we have South Carolina next door and, and South Carolina is North Carolina next door. So we can like work as one. So as the Panthers uh, said, we're two states in one. And that's how I feel about it. Having a major league baseball team in Charlotte would be two states in one. Wow. That's interesting. Cause I know I've, I've spent a lot of time down in North Carolina and I know that there's a lot of baseball fans down there. Tell me if you're down in North Carolina and you don't have a major league baseball team down there, who do you root for? Well, we have a triple A team called the Charlotte Knights. They're the affiliate of the Chicago White Sox and they have a beautiful, beautiful stadium. It's called Truist Park. Mm-hmm. It's right in the heart of uptown or downtown. We call it uptown. And it's right there. We have a park there. It's actually two blocks from Bank of America where the Panthers play. So we have a lot of minor league teams here. We have one in Durham. Of course, you know, the movie Bull Durham based from the Durham Bulls up in Durham, North Carolina. I was in Gastonia. They have a brand new baseball team. It's about 30 minutes away. It's a smaller city. They have a team called the Honey Hunters. We have a team in Greensboro with the Grasshoppers. We have a lot of teams here. But as I'm from Los Angeles, I tell people, I'm a Dodger fan and uh, I'll be a Dodger fan till North Carolina gets a major league baseball team right now. I'm like you, I'm a Dodger fan. People tell me why, but I, when I tell them I'm from there and we don't have MLB here yet, they go, okay, well that makes sense. But a lot of them are, are, have become Braves fans. I think, uh, you know, usually that's what happens when your state don't have one, you go to, you root for the team next to you. I know, but no offense to Atlanta, no offense to the Braves, but to me, that's Georgia's team. You know, it's about time North Carolina had their own team. So I remember a team called the Mudcats. Yes, the Carolina Mudcats. Uh, they play in Zebulon, North Carolina. I think that's how you pronounce it. They're still there. We have another team called the Downies Wood Ducks. And uh, Howard Johnson, uh, the old Mets player, he is actually the manager there. So we have a lot of interesting independent minor league baseball teams here. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to go to. You know, I never was into minor league baseball, uh, didn't know much about it because, you know, we really didn't, you know, we had the Dodgers. But, you know, since I moved out here, I've always, I've appreciated minor league and independent baseball. So it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And I, and I imagine no matter what park you go to to watch a game, the hot dogs are still delicious. The hot dogs are great. Coca-Cola is good. And, you know, popcorn is good. And I think it's great when it's a hot summer night. And we got a lot of humidity here in North Carolina and you can get yourself a nice beer and a nice hot dog and enjoy a game. And then you make a friend here too. You're always going to sit next to somebody who, who loves the game and uh, is enjoying it. So that's always the fun part of it as well. That's terrific. We have some minor league teams around here, the Jersey Jackals we have. We haven't been in quite a while, but it's just a nice night at, at the baseball park. But I want to go on to ask you, so... You feel a need. You're a transplant to Charlotte, mm-hmm. a transplant with a heart for baseball. And you can see in your mind how much 
Major League Baseball can bring to an area. What is it that you are actually doing now to bring Major League Baseball to Charlotte to accomplish that goal? Well, I'm on great shows like yours, you know, to start. I've been doing a lot of podcasts. Unfortunately, you know, this COVID-19 has been a nightmare for a lot of people, you know, and I think everybody has suffered, whether it doesn't matter what you do, everyone has suffered from COVID-19. So before COVID-19, I would go to business groups. Uh, I have friends who are up in the Charlotte City Council. I actually contacted our governor and I spoke to someone in his staff and I was telling them, we need to get a major league baseball team here, governor, you know, and talk to his staff and they actually loved the idea. And then unfortunately COVID kind of came. Now, you know, we're indoors. So when I'm not out and about and things are opening up, I've been going, attending more things. I'll be attending more things in the future. But for now, I've been doing podcasts. I go on Facebook and just market it. I contact people. LinkedIn is a great source. Mm-hmm. You meet people from all over. That's how we met. If I'm not out and about, I'm usually on, like behind a computer on social media, just putting the word out there and just asking people one simple question. Can Charlotte support a major league baseball team? Or would you like to see Charlotte, North Carolina have a major league baseball team? And I've had people from Australia contact me. A funny story was that I actually met a, a young lady somewhere, I think in Switzerland she was in, and she contacted me and said, I love your shirt. Can I get one? And I'm thinking, why would a girl from a foreign country want a Charlotte Bats t-shirt? I don't, I don't get it. Well, her name was Charlotte Bats. That was her actual name. And she said, I would love to have a shirt with my name on it. <laughs> and I just told her, okay. And I sent her a shirt and she actually sent me a picture of herself. And so thank you to Charlotte Bats out there. And she wears her Charlotte Bats shirt and said, look, they, there's a team that they're going to name after me in America. <laughs> so so that's the great thing about what I do. You have these stories that are just so unbelievable. Like when I thought of the name, I just thought Charlotte Bats because of Charlotte, North Carolina. But there really is a Charlotte Bats out there. And she loves her shirt. Hopefully we'll have some cool stories like that sometime in the near future. <laughs> So just to clarify, the, the name Charlotte Bats, is a, that's a name that you've come up with as a potential right. name for a team in Charlotte, a Major League Baseball team. You actually have created a logo for that team. Are you trying to also market that logo and that name, which you've created? Yeah, uh, we're going to be opening up an online store soon, and we're going to have hats and T-shirts. We actually have uniforms. You know, I wanted to make sure that the name had connections with North Carolina. We have a lot of bats here in North Carolina and Charlotte, very, very common. We actually had a Miley baseball team called the Greensboro Bats mm-hmm. from uh, 1994 to 2004. Now they're called the Grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. And so I said, who? That name that names has connections to North Carolina. And the colors we chose are the colors of the city of Charlotte and, the, and our university, UNCC Charlotte, uh, home of the... Charlotte 49ers. So we just put all that together and made sure that it had a connection to North Carolina and Charlotte. So when people ask me why Charlotte bats, I just tell them what I just told you right now. And then they're like, Oh, okay. That's okay. Then, you know, at first they're kind of like, Oh, I don't know about the name, but when you tell them why they're called that and you see that connection with the state and the city, then people are like, okay, I get it now. That's a good name. So people like it. I think it's a cool name. So we kept it. Now, the old bats, the um, minor league team, Greensboro, you said it was? Yes, in Greensboro. 
Was that named after like the baseball bat as opposed to the animal? No, it was named after the animal, actually. Um, uh, their old logo had like a little cute little bat. So I thought it was kind of cool to be a kind of a play on words, like a, an actual bat holding a bat, kind of ironic, kind of funny, kind of everything in, in there in between. So, and there's no pro teams with that name. We wanted something different. We didn't want to have a team that is already out there, like the Kings. People say, why don't you call them the Kings? And I thought, well, you got Sacramento Kings and you got the uh, LA Kings of hockey. So we wanted to be something different. The important thing was that we just wanted a symbol to show people instead of just saying MLB in Charlotte has come up with a name, a logo, uniforms. And I think because people are so visual, I think that's what's helped us with our campaign, that they see that that vision of a, a potential Major League Baseball team coming to Charlotte. So if I understand correctly, the logo that you've created and the name that you've given the team is really a rallying point for bringing the sport into yeah, the city. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's a good, I think it's good. I think it comes, it, it goes with it. It's marketable. People seem to like it. I ask people all the time, is this something you, if you saw at a store, would you buy it? And they go, absolutely. So I would love that to be the name, but if, you know, when major, when Charlotte gets major league baseball and they decide, you know, we're going to go a different direction, I'll be happy. I just want to see a major league baseball team in our city and state like I've been telling people, sports brings people together. It will bring billions of dollars to our state. It will provide jobs. You meet people there. You have business that get engaged, community get engaged. And there's not a lot of things that we can agree with right now. And I think one thing we can agree with is with sports. You have people who have their favorite team and people will talk bad about their team, but it's all in fun. That's what I love about sports. It's all fun. People love it. I've met people who I had nothing in common with. And when I mentioned about sports, they lit up and they talk about their team. And I met a lot of friends all through just talking about sports. That's terrific. Yeah. How has baseball impacted the person you are today? Um, I think before I was kind of like no direction I had, I felt like I, people would always ask me. I remember one time someone asked me if you could do something out there, what would you want to do? And I always said, I would love to see a major league baseball team in Charlotte. And they go, then do it. You have the knowledge, you have the vision, you're an artist, you, you have it. And I said, maybe that's why you were sent to Charlotte, North Carolina. Like never in my wildest dreams that I ever think I'd be in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, I said, maybe God sent you here to bring an MLB team, kind of like feel the dreams, you know, where, you know, he's out there and that voice comes along and says, you know, if you build it, they will come. Everybody thought he was nuts. Everyone thought he was crazy. He was a town joke. He was facing all these crazy hurdles, but he built this stadium and, you know, it, it was about getting his relationship with his father. Now he had the field of dreams game. That was like the most watched MLB game in 15 years, which is absolutely amazing. You, you would think a world series game would be hard, but that field of dreams game brought in more viewers than major league baseball has ever had. And they're going to do it again. So, you know, when I see things like that, just someone just having a crazy idea, but just putting it to work. And, you know, if it wasn't for a lot of crazy ideas, uh, we wouldn't be having a lot of things right now. So um, those are the people who I look up to. And so it's, it's just giving me a more vision. And when I tell people my story, they, they really like it. And I, still to this day, I'm just like, I'm just very lucky to be here. 
why Charlotte? You know, it took me many years to figure out why am I here, but I finally just realized why I came to Charlotte. That's great, Rick. I'm really so glad that there's people like you who are trying to do something really positive for your community. And, you know, even when you said, look, if they, if they use my logo, if they use the team name, you'd be thrilled, you know, because you're a talented artistic guy and, and you've been behind this project, this goal. But as you said, your main concern and, and your main objective is, is just to bring a sport to Charlotte that people will love and enjoy. And that's major league baseball team. The cherry on the Sunday for Charlotte would be having a major league baseball team. Cause we got everything here. we got corporations, we got banks, we got jobs. We have pretty much everything here in Charlotte that a lot of cities don't have. And I think that's what surprises people. I always hear we're a small market, but Milwaukee is a small market and they just won the NBA championship. Green Bay is a small market and the Packers have like one of the most loyal fan bases and have won, you know, more uh, NFL championships than any other team. You don't have to be this big, sexy city like New York, like a Los Angeles, like a Las Vegas to have a successful team. As long as it's you have a team here and the people support it and go to the games. When we do get a team, I see many, many World Series coming here. So but right now I need to bring a, a team to Charlotte. Well, I'm certainly hoping that that happens. I really am looking forward to getting a call from you telling me the team is coming. And there's one thing I've got to ask, though. You got to get me tickets to come and watch with you, okay? Absolutely. And it might be coming sooner than later. And we need more teams in the South. We have a lot in the West, a lot in the Midwest. All we have are the Braves. If we can have Atlanta Braves, Charlotte, Nashville, and you got a team in Florida, there's a Southern division right now. So it will bring a lot more balance to Major League Baseball. Wow. So we've heard the official prediction by Rick Curdy that it's coming sooner than later. Yeah, it's going to come sooner than later. Charlotte is growing by leaps and bounds. The 13 years I've been here, the city has just exploded with people, with businesses. It's amazing how my area, you know, is just a lot of young people are moving here like crazy. This is like a little hidden jewel that a lot of people don't know about is Charlotte. It's, it's affordable. It's a great place to raise a family, great schools great people. And it's just a whole mixture of people. It's just, this is a melting pot here. So I'm happy to be here. And all we need is MLB and Charlotte. That's pretty much all we need right now. Thank you so much, Rick. How can people find you to find out more about what you're doing? Well, contact me on my website at www.charlottebats.com. We have a uh, petition on there. You can put your name on there and, and tell us, you know, you'd like to see a team in MLB. In Charlotte, we're going to come out with an online store soon. We have a community page on there. We have a media page on there. You can see, hear my interviews. Our email address is cltbatsbaseball@gmail.com. You want to get involved, just email me, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. And if you find me on Facebook at Charlotte MLB and Charlotte Bats, I'm on there. I'm also on Instagram at Charlotte Bats, CLT Bats, and also on Twitter on CLT Bats Baseball. Contact me on there. I'm on there every single day. And uh, you want to get involved? Great. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Rick, thank you for your time and for being on our show. And I wish you the very best in what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye, Rick. Bye.
I'd now like to welcome Chris LaRosa to our show. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be on your awesome podcast and uh, taking time to talk about genealogy. Terrific. Well, just for our listeners, Chris and I met on Twitter. Chris had reached out uh, to our podcast to introduce himself. And Chris and I had a nice long, we had a nice long conversation, didn't we, Chris? That is correct. And yes, we, we have a common interest in family history. And I found out that you are somebody who, you know, at the amateur level had sort of jumped into this genealogy and just found it fascinating. So I want to sort of springboard off your amazing enthusiasm and uh, what you've learned about genealogy and share that with our listeners. And, and I want to hear it too, because I've been an amateur genealogist myself and I just love it, but I am not very well organized. I'm all over the place when I do genealogy and I'm sure some of us out there do the same thing. It, we jump in, we jump out and we sometimes forget what we've found out and we have to refind it again. So we're going to talk to a guy here, Chris, who's really digging into this and doing a great job. So Chris, where were you born and raised? Where are you from? Purely born and raised in Southern New Jersey in a small town called Maple Shade, about a half hour south of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. And where do you live now? I am currently residing in the uh, same state, uh, same part, Southern, and I am in a small town called Medford, very old town that is connected actually to the Revolutionary War. Ah, yes. History. Here we go. So you're a Jersey guy like I am, and you're apparently very interested in history as well. So what do you do now? What's your occupation? I've been doing contract work in data management. Okay. Uh, I've been performing data management for about 11 years. Prior to that, I still am, but the work was biomedical scientist. Okay. Uh, working in medical research laboratories. Gotcha. So you're a detail guy and you're very familiar with the importance of organizing information. Uh, very much so. Yeah. I have to be. <laughs> yeah. And that comes in very handy with genealogy. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So let me just ask you this. When, when you were growing up in your family, were you around older relatives like grandparents or aunts and uncles who would share stories about the past? Yes, many of the stories I heard were from my maternal grandmother, uh, who was born over 100 years ago, and I heard many stories from her. I recall most of them, but at the time, they weren't as important to me as they are now. Now they're little treasures in my mind. Yeah, let, let's talk about that for a second, because... I think a lot of us take for granted when we're younger, when we're around some elderly relatives, we think we're going to have them around forever, right? And you hear these great stories and sometimes we're like, oh, there they go again. They're telling stories or we may actually find their fascinating stories, but we don't ask more questions. We don't, we don't sometimes dig further. And do you find that there were questions you wished you had asked your grandmother that you didn't? Yes, many of them. What I did ask was how was life during the Great Depression? Mm. I remember most of those details, but there's so many other questions that I, I wish I have asked and didn't get the chance. Yeah, well, I'm in the same boat. 
And I do, I do remember asking a lot of questions. A lot of those things I've, I've forgotten, but uh, I, there are things I think, oh, if only I had written that down or if, if I only had recorded their voices and stuff like that. So as far as genealogy is concerned, I understand it's more in recent times that you've really become interested in family history. What sparked that interest in you, Chris? That's a great question, James. I'm glad you asked. At first, when my second son was born in 2007, my wife and I actually discussed starting a family tree and doing research in the, the, you know, the public venues like libraries and whatnot and, and online. I actually started uh, on Ancestry, a profile, a few months after my son was born. I started digging around a little bit and one thing led to another as we all get busy with children. I had an, another son who was two and a half at the time and working, uh, going back and forth, working in a, in a lab in Philadelphia and everything came to a halt. Raising kids and busy with, you know, in-laws and, and whatnot, you know, life gets in the way and in, in a good way, of course. And after Another event in my life that was kind of traumatic that sparked my interest again was a couple years after my mother passed away, which was 2016, June. I had this, not panicky feeling, but this realization that, wow, my, my immediate family is getting smaller because we're getting older, you know, time passes as we wanted to and not wanted to at the same time and the bittersweetness of it. And I thought, wow, I had this idea so long ago. I have more time now. My children are more independent. And let me, you know, take my detail-oriented skills and delve back into it. It's been a wild roller coaster, all positive. Yeah. You mentioned about your, your mom's passing in 2016, and two years later, you you started to revisit your interest in family history. What about your mom's passing was it that made you want to get back into exploring family history? Reaching out to find out where more family could be, mm -hmm. if they were still around where they're at, and the deeper mystery of, you know, the cliche expression, where do I come from? Yeah. How did all the footprints, where were they literally to get me to where I am right now? Yeah, that's a good point saying it that way. So you were, you felt your family shrinking and you wanted to, one, I guess uncover more people that were in your family to kind of make it bigger, but also to, to deepen your understanding of who these people were and, you know, you're part of something bigger, right? A bigger family and who they are. So that's certainly a good motivator. So tell me about that path, because you said the first, <laughs> the first journey was a little bit brief because life got in the way. You had, a, you had a toddler and a newborn and, and uh, you got really, really busy. But we all know that every phase of life gets its busy points, right? Oh, definitely. And, so what was different about this second time that made this stick? That is a great question. I think with my mother's passing, 
and my grandmother's passing in 2009, some milestones for my sons, you know, coming into the double digits and being teenage boys, kind of a mortality marker for me. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to be here forever. My wife isn't. My father certainly isn't. Who are my children going to have as family after we're gone? And I thought, wow, even if I can find first, second, third cousins, you know, maybe a great aunt or uncle who possibly could still be around, kind of a, a project for my sons. Nice. To do some of the groundwork. Yes. What was your first step when you decided to get back into it? So the first thing I thought to myself was, okay, I've heard these stories about my father's father, his father. So I have some anchors right there, some landmarks to, to, to search around when I finally got online and got back into my ancestry profile. And I had some stories from my grandmother and my mom's mom. As soon as I got into ancestry, it was like a million light bulbs going off in my mind. And the connections were pretty quick for the first couple generations. But then when you get past the third or fourth, it can be quite difficult. Yeah, from those stories, I would say hitting some roadblocks uh, on both sides. Uh, I've hit some dead ends. So... So when you say Ancestry, you're talking about Ancestry.com? Yes, sir. So you're using an online database. And so what I'm hearing from you then is that one of the first stops is to talk to people. You had the conversations with your grandmother. She, she had passed already, but you, you had gleaned some of that information from discussions you had with her in the past. So you have to start with that, that you have those stories. Now, your dad, you spoke to your dad about his father. Is that how you got the information? Yeah, through the last several decades, I heard stories from my father about how his uh, paternal grandfather cut sugarcane in Louisiana when he immigrated from Italy in the early very early 1900s, for example. I interviewed and reconnected with some of my first cousins on that side. Okay. And they were able to either reaffirm, validate, or spark my memories again. Okay. Did they fill in some blanks too? Yes. That makes sense. So you use resources, people in your family. I'm just summarizing what I'm hearing from you. You use resources, uh, relatives who may have part of the story that you know already. They may have to correct a little of the story that you thought you knew, and they might also give new stuff that you've never heard before. So that's what you were, you were getting from your cousins. Correct. Interviewing is a big piece of genealogy slash family history that people sometimes shy away from because it's a reconnection with family. There could be you know, some bad blood, there could be years of non-communication and they're apprehensive or uncomfortable or anxious about reconnecting. So as an amateur genealogist of three plus years, I highly recommend taking that path besides being online because the online is great, but you don't get the firsthand knowledge that's verbalized that can validate your findings. Exactly. You're going to get some information that may not be on official records. You could have people. I know 
uh, in my family in recent years, I've received from some cousins copies of letters that my aunt wrote, my grandfather wrote back in the 20s that they had in their possession that had just some fun, interesting details that would never show up on an on a online database. As you said, it, online databases are fantastic resources, but you can also get this information from relatives. Some relatives you didn't even know existed because of ancestry, right? That is correct. That was the excitement for me, actually finding, because when people think of genealogy and family history, the stereotype is, well, you're going to be hunting down and stalking people who passed already, who, were, who died. Yeah. And that's not the case. So without, without even using DNA analysis, without getting DNA matches online, I found probably a half dozen living relatives that gave me more information, more treasure trove. Yeah. It's almost like genealogy is this huge jigsaw puzzle, infinite number of pieces. And you interview and connect and meet in person sometimes a family member you didn't know existed or, and they give you more pieces of the puzzle and you keep expanding what you have. It's really an incredible experience. And I, I recommend anyone who has some time and if you don't have the knowledge, that's okay to, to start your your genealogy journey. Yeah. And it's so much easier now than it used to be. I know that many years ago, I had a dear friend, he's since passed, but he was the type of guy who was into genealogy in his retirement, but he would get into his car and drive down to Trenton, New Jersey. He would go to the archives and he would pull all these old records out and he'd pay to have photocopies made. And he would say to me, hey, I'm going to Trenton. You want me to get you any records? And I'd say, oh, gee, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Can you look for blah, blah, blah? Certainly. And he'd come back with them and it'd be like, oh, my gosh, this is so great. But that was then. And that was a lot of work. And sometimes you and you still sometimes have to get in the car and go places. I, I have never gotten to that level. And that's where I'm sort of a lightweight that I'm, I'm not that guy who gets into the car and drives to places and actually opens up musty old books. Sometimes you have to do that. But this guy used to do that. Now, there was a time when that's all you could do. But now, as you said, you've got, A, you've got some documents online that you can look at through. There's, there's several companies that offer that online genealogy. You can find out information there. But it also, as you say, a very important thing is you can connect with people who can give you more information and fill in more of your stories. So you've connected with folks, you start to do some digging. What kind of stories did you start to piece together about your family? And can you share a couple of them with us? Uh, certainly. That's the exciting part when you start to gather the actual stories and it's expounds on the jigsaw puzzle, but the fulfillment and the conclusion that you can come to is for me, it's all inspiring. It really is. I can't explain in words the excitement. I'm getting excited right now talking about it. <laughs> it is. It's crazy, isn't it? It gets you so interested. So one really stands out is on my mother's side of the family, so the maternal side. Her 
father, John, who I never met, he passed before I was born. Mm-hmm. His side of the family, so his parents, their homeland is Lithuania. Okay. Which back then was part of Russia. And I found out a very intriguing story that when communism first started in Russia, which was about 1917, there was a, I guess you could call them a criminal gang family mm-hmm. by the name of Bolshevik. Mm-hmm. So the Bolsheviks, they were basically raiding people's houses for resources from firearms to money, gold, what have you. And my family got wind of them that they were coming to their large manor house. They were well off, they had servants, Mm -hmm. and they basically had to leave with the clothes on their backs and leave their house. That's all they knew. And they immigrated to, to Germany and then eventually here. So they ran for their lives because of the Bolshevik revolution. They ousted the czar and communism prevailed in the Soviet Union until 1989. Yep. Wow. When did they end up coming to the United States? Do you know, Chris? It was about three years later. They immigrated to Germany. Uh, They did not come through Ellis Island. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, That is another uh, stereotype assumption that a lot of people make that, quote unquote, everyone comes through Ellis Island. That is uh, false. A lot of families didn't. And my mother's paternal grandparents' family did not come through Ellis Island. And it took, it was about two and a half, three years. And I have photos of them. I have more stories beyond that one. Mm-hmm. that I think we would be on the podcast for a long time. So it'd be for maybe another episode. Yeah. So what else did you find out? There's somebody that's called Thomas the Clockmaker. Who is Thomas the Clockmaker? Uh, Thomas, another intriguing character in my family, a very historic figure. I'm getting excited and again, thinking about him. <laughs> he is my maternal great-grandfather times four. That side of the family comes from England and Ireland. He was a clockmaker. He serviced clocks. One of the clocks that he serviced was the clock tower in Pennsylvania. Where in Pennsylvania? Philadelphia. Philadelphia clock tower. And what period of time was this? The 1790s and early 1800s. Okay. He was actually a mentor under Mr. Rittenhouse. If you've heard of Rittenhouse Square of Philadelphia, that is named after my great grandfather's mentor. That's cool. And I think another interesting thing to think about is when you hear about your ancestors and where they lived and what time period they lived there, you can also do a little research on what was going on during that time. And when you mentioned Philadelphia in the 1790s, I think yellow fever, it was devastating the city of Philadelphia back then. So your multiple great grandfather was working at a time where he was probably in in great danger 
and his family as well because of this disease, but he, he had his work to do and he did it. That is correct. He serviced the clock for a good decade. Mm -hmm. He had his own shop and at his own shop, he met an actual very historic figure, very, very famous. I'm getting excited again, thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word, this is, this is one of those awe-inspiring things I found about my family history that I'm very proud of. So Mr. Thomas Parker met Lewis of Lewis and Clark Expedition. Meriwether Lewis. Yes, sir. No kidding me. So were they doing business together? Why did he meet him? Well, Meriwether, he found out that my grandfather was an excellent inventor mm -hmm. and clockmaker, clockworker, and he commissioned Thomas to create a time-telling device for their expedition. Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. So he was contracted to do this. Let me ask you this question for those people who are you know, starting to think about, hey, I'd like to get into my family history. How did you find that information out? How did you know that Thomas met Meriwether Lewis? Well, there is evidence. I have some documentation sources, source documents, mm -hmm. that actually have his name on them. His name is on a couple of websites. Is this Thomas's name or are you talking about Lewis's name? Uh, Thomas's name. Okay. And Thomas is, his name is mentioned on a website where he actually made the time-telling advice I was mentioning a little earlier mm -hmm. for Lewis, which is called a chronometer. And what is that? It's basically a time-telling device so they could know exactly what hour and minute was wherever they were during their okay. expedition. And it was, I believe, don't quote me on this, it was down to, I believe it was less than 60 seconds. So it was pretty accurate for that time. Yes. So what I'm hearing now is that you can also search the web for when you find out some information, you can use that information, leverage it and find other things out on the web as well as going to find documents in person, as well as other investigative tools. So that's how you found out about the clockmaker. So not only did he service the clock in Philadelphia, but he also did this work for some famous people. Yes, sir. It was, it was very, to know those things was starting to fulfill my, my curiosity of who did I come from? Where did I come from? Mm -hmm. Who do I share my DNA with? Because you hear the, the expression, well, you know, you got your math skills from your grandfather, or you got your diplomacy from your mom, or what have you. So he was an inventor and scientist, an engineer. It's very possible that I had part of that trait. Yeah, definitely. When you found out this information about your family running from the Bolsheviks and you found out about Thomas the Clockmaker, what did you do to preserve that information as you could actually use it to find more information? Another great question, James. So depending on the source, so let's go with an online source document. 
So Ancestry.com is my, what I call my genealogy hub or headquarters. I use over a dozen other free and paid uh, subscription databases besides Ancestry, but that's my hub. And what you can do is, if you believe in the future, you won't be a paid subscriber to a certain site, you can just copy and paste the online source document onto say a flash drive or your hard drive always back up your information though i can't say that enough because you never know when you're going to get hacked hit with a virus if you especially if you're working with an older laptop or desktop computer so i organize it by after i have that online source document copied i go by maternal paternal side and then narrow it down to all right is this a cousin when did they live and what have you so i have like subcategories if you have a actual in the flesh document with photos so in my case my first cousin first removed uh cousin she sent me an actual family history typed out with photos through the mail to my home Mm -hmm. you scan those documents and you have at least one backup right and you keep that with your other online source documents always backed up. I can't, I can't mention it enough. I keep myself organized that way and keep my anxiety at bay because you never know, hey, you know, flash flood or, you know, your house catches on fire. You don't want to lose everything. Right. If you have a, a flash drive or two that has all the, you know, the diamond parts of your family history on it, like the photos and the online source documents that took you months to find or weeks, always have that ready to go. Right. That's good. Cause then it's always there. So when you move on to another part of your project, another part of your family tree, you can always go back and revisit other areas that need more developing. And that, that's terrific because what's wonderful. The other thing about technology now is that you're, quite a bit younger than I am, but I know that we always had the box of pictures in our family. (laughs) It was in the attic or in a drawer somewhere. And every once in a while, we'd we'd haul that box of pictures out. Or in our case, in my family, my dad was a big slide picture taker back in the 50s and 60s. He was very in to take slides so that you would get these little cartridges and you would buy a projector and you would put them up on a screen and we'd have these little family slide nights once a year. And uh, we did that, but they would sit in these boxes and every once in a while we'd get them out and look at them. And then people would say, this was so-and-so and this was so-and-so. But even though we take thousands and thousands of pictures on our phones now, I'm not sure we spend the time really looking at them together as a group, you know? And when I think about, you having cousins mailing you pictures and family histories. It's so cool to get that going again, but you got to document, you got to save it. You got to share, you got to preserve it, but you also have to identify what these pictures are. The one thing that was a problem with the box of pictures in the attic is that 90% of them didn't have anything written on the back, but we had the people around who knew who they were, but guess what? Those people aren't always around. <laughs> They're going to leave us. <laughs> it's going to happen. So what you're doing is you're, you're taking these pictures and documents and you're backing them up 
But are you also documenting who the people are and all that as well? Yes, sir. It's very important. And I also tell my sons this, whenever I find something new, I share it with the family. Some friends too, depending on what the information is. And it's very important, not only to write on the back of a picture saying, all right, this is, you know, Jane Smith or, you know, Joseph Marks or whoever it is, to actually take those photos, scan them front and back. It's very time consuming. I have thousands of photos. Scan them and actually write or type under the photo besides what's on the back of it and say, this is this person and, you know, maybe write what their nickname was. Right. Because you're, you're going to find things out like that on Ancestry or MyHeritage or 23andMe. None of those sites will have those little tidbits that make family history personal. Right. You got to make it personal. And that's, that's the important thing. And it's got to mean something. And, you know, you're going to have it there because maybe one of your, one of your kids is, is going to take an interest in this. Maybe not. Maybe it'll end up being, a, a, you know, another relative who's going to, you're going to pass the baton to. But if you have it well documented, it can be added to, but never taken away from. It can't be lost. I can only imagine the, the sad situations where there's estate sales, where there's albums that get tossed because nobody wants to deal with them or I don't know who these people are. Do you? I don't know. But there could be a cousin in California who'd be like salivating over it. You know what I mean? You got to think about how do you preserve your family's history? And it sounds like you're doing that. So you're finding some interesting things. And I know that you've got way more stories to tell. The mysteries are unraveling in your family history, which is fantastic. But I want to talk more about the process now for those of the listeners who will be interested in starting something like this. Let's talk about the walls that get hit by people dabbling in genealogy. It could be professionals, it could be amateurs or what have you. But I know I've hit some walls. I think you mentioned that you have. What are some of the walls that someone might hit? Great question. A very common one is having a common last name, yeah. which can drive you batty. Uh, so the last name Smith, Jones, Roberts, right there. If you have a common name, you have many puzzle pieces to put together. And it may take you years to track down someone you're looking for with a common surname. That's something that gave me some problems as well. We had a John Smith in our family. What helped there, in my case, I was able to unlock some things with him was that I sort of found him and more information about him through his wife. So I was able to find on his wife's side, I was able to track church documents, which indicated that he had a middle initial and where they were married. So I, it gave me an idea of where they lived. So now I had a, a little more information to find this guy and find out you know, when he died and where he was buried and stuff like that. And I did have some success. But if you're just going in cold and looking up John Smith, you're going to look at you know, thousands of John Smiths and it may not take anywhere. So 
I know in my case, I had to find other information. You have to know a little bit about their life. Otherwise, if you know where they lived, approximately what, when they were born, if you knew what church they went to, you know, and, and then of course, even military service, if you knew they fought in a, in a war or they're in the army or Navy or whatever. So yes, you're absolutely right. A common last name is a problem. What other problems do you think a person might run into with a wall? Another one I have found is finding a year, a birth date off or a year mm -hmm. from a census record. Mm -hmm. Compared, the census could be, say, birth date 1803. Mm -hmm. And all the other records you find have the same name, the same middle name the same residence and the birth year is off one to five years. Yeah. That could be a roadblock that'll take you on different paths down different rabbit holes. That's true. And there's another one. I don't know if you've ever run into this one that people often use their middle names and you don't know which one you're looking at in a census. Is it their middle name? I have a, an ancestor whose name was, James Loveland. He was a great, great grandfather. And I would see his name in a census in one year. And then 10 years later, it would be Harry Loveland. And I'd know it was the same person, but which one was the middle name? Which one was the first name? Then you'd look up Harry, then you'd find nothing. You look up James and you'd find nothing. And it would be very stumping because you didn't know which one he was. And maybe there was even another name that he was called. I've had a couple of complete dead ends. They are fewer than they used to be, and there's a lot more openings. But how exciting is it when you break through some of those walls? It makes the days, hours, weeks, or, or even months, the returning, because the word research, it means you're redoing something, you're researching something. It makes all that time all the worthwhile. Mm -hmm. It's... I'm going to hark it back to the word fulfilling. It's the sense of fulfillment. It's, it's probably not on the, the level of discovering DNA, mm -hmm. but, you know, essentially a, a nobody amateur genealogist for me to find something like that. It puts the dot at the end of the sentence for me. I hear you. Everybody has a story. And that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast, your history, your story. So many of us may think, oh, I, I, I don't know much about my family, but then you can open up this treasure trove of interesting people. Sometimes we find out things we don't really want to find out. <laughs> and uh, people do run into that. I've actually heard about people who say, oh, well, my, my relative was doing some research and they got their husband or their wife, a DNA kid. And then all of a sudden somebody <laughs> pops up that they didn't know they were related to put it that way. And it causes some red faces sometimes, but it is a way to, for the ordinary person to sort of open up. It's almost like a mystery novel in a way. And what makes it more, more exciting though, is it's really about their family and it's about our families and that's what makes it so cool. So what would you say is your biggest success that you would say of, of all the things you've done so far, what was the biggest gem that you've uncovered so far? Uh, you're making me think. <laughs> well, it's too many to count, right? 
There is too many in accounts. I would say finding living relatives who furthered my research, fulfilled the spark that made me want to find family because I had the anxious feeling of my family shrinking because of time. I would say that's that out of everything. Is the biggest gem. Is a large gem that I'm very proud of that what I sought out to do, I'm seeing the fruits of my labor. That's terrific. I'm glad you said that because that is a huge part of this. And I've connected with cousins that I haven't, uh, you know, I didn't know that well before. And now I do. And we share our common, common ancestors. I think it's wonderful. I think it's such a great, it's a, such a great hobby because if you like mystery novels and stuff like that, or you, you, you like watching true crime or you like to just figure things out. I think it's the perfect hobby to have. And if you love history, but you, you add that other dimension, you are very good at organizing data. And as you said, backing up stuff, making sure it's archived for future generations. I think that's priceless. How would you say, I mean, you've, you've given a clue as to, to some of this already, but I have to ask the question straight out. How has your life been impacted through this new hobby and interest of yours? That's a heavy one. But lifting that um, at, very, at the very start was difficult. Mm-hmm. And the impact has been immeasurable for me personally. I'm not a very spiritual person, but this journey for me has fulfilled the void of, once again, where did I come from? What led to me? What led to my children? What stories can I collect that I have collected so I can pass down? Right. The stories, firsthand knowledge from living relatives, very... I can't even put it into words, hearing their story and kind of like I'm sharing my story with you, my history with yourself and knowing that what are they going to pass down? Yeah. What other things are going to come in the future? What other information is going to come? You mentioned about getting your boys involved in this. Do you sense that they're getting any interest in this right now? Uh, Yeah, actually, my oldest son, he, he took an interest a couple of years ago. He likes to hear the stories. My youngest, he had a project for his web design class. He's in ninth grade. He actually had to put some stuff together to describe himself. Like, who am I? Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said was, hey, I'm a descendant of Sir Robert the Bruce of Scotland. And if you don't know that name, it's from the movie Braveheart. Right. So that was another story you didn't get to tell. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff you can find out here, how, who we're related to. Yes. So to answer your question, they're gonna, they both have a web design class. They love the computer. They love technology. And they're going to help me build a website for a future endeavor that's not far away. Uh, that I've been slowly working on for the past year or so, doing genealogy and family history services for the general public. So you're thinking about in the future going into a more of a professional genealogy type of a situation. We want to tell us a little more about that. 
Yes, sir. It's uh, it's very exciting. The idea cropped up uh, spring of 2020. I thought to myself, hey, I got pretty good skill. I have background in data and, and science, so I can explain some of the DNA. And I thought to myself, hey, if I could earn a couple bucks on the side, you know, for my kid's college fund or for my certification for genealogy, I eventually want to get, so be it. And help people along the way, find out where their roots are embedded. Mm-hmm. And I've helped out about a half a dozen friends with their own family histories or family trees. And I started to think of a name for this endeavor. And I've gotten some rave reviews from, from the public and uh, from my family and some close friends. I came up with the name Days Gone By Genealogy. It makes you think it's a little bit of a nostalgic name and it makes you think of family and your own story and what you could find out about your family history. So I started to go on social media and put the name out there. I don't have an LLC or a trademark or anything yet or a website, but that's down the road. I actually have a, about a dozen people uh, who are interested in, in my help and my support. Terrific. So we're to stay tuned. You're kind of in the process of getting this up and running and getting the certifications you need to do it. You know, Chris, this has been a lot of fun. I could talk to you for another two hours about genealogy. And I just thank you for your enthusiasm. And you're actually taking time in your busy life to do something that's really going to be great for your kids and other family members. And Someone in the future is going to get a DNA hit on you and say, I'm going to contact this guy and they're going to get a treasure trove of stuff. Because as you said before, you want to share it with other people and because you're part of a bigger picture, a bigger family. And, and that's one of the reasons why you started this. Yes, sir. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. And if you have even a minuscule amount of interest in history or your family, or even photography, you want to find old photos, mm-hmm. definitely take a jump down that rabbit hole. You will not regret it. Chris, thanks again. And I hope you have a great evening. Thanks, James. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure uh, speaking with you. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.